Aaron Neville has won four Grammys and was named Best Male Singer two years in a row in the Rolling Stone Critics Poll. He's recorded a dozen solo albums ranging in genre from uh, gospel to country and now jazz. Have you done much Zydeco, though, in the last uh, number of years? No. Uh, I mean, we kind of put a little bit in the Neville show, you know, but uh, I haven't recorded any. On my, uh, my first Christmas album, I did a thing called, it was like a Zydeco beat to it, uh, I'll be home this Christmas. I can't remember the exact name of it. It was my first Christmas album back in probably 97 or something like that. Louisiana Christmas Day, that was the name of it, yeah. And it was like a Zydeco beat to it. Right, right. I, I think I was actually in Australia when I got introduced to Zydeco. It's, now, that was something you played a lot in your younger days, though, was it not? Well, I mean, that, was, that, was, that really came from, like, out of New Orleans, like uh, Lafayette and, you know, them kind of places, you know, them country towns. That's where that started, you know. Started calling the cage and then and it was that cool and I mean we used to hang out with uh Rusty Kershaw you know we we got a little flavor from him as Doug Kershaw's brother. Well, you easily have one of the most recognizable voices in the industry and first thing I'd like to say is happy 47th wedding anniversary. I think that oh, was thanks a lot. That was yesterday, wasn't it? Well, actually tomorrow, but we've been going through that for the last I don't know how many years. We've you know, we've been saying it was on the 10th, but it's actually on the 12th, so... All right, well, let's clear that up yeah. once and for all. 47 years, that's... Uh, and you also have a birthday coming up, too, I think, end of January. On the 24th, yeah. 65, that's hard to believe, isn't it? Yep, and again, I mean, you know, hey, <laughs> you don't feel like 65. I mean, you know, like, when I was a kid and I saw guys, I used to think they were in their 60s and their 70s. They were in their 40s, I guess, the life, lifestyle that took them down, you know. Maybe I got out of it just in time. Yeah, I think you did. Well, yeah. now, now you're a father of four and grandfather of six. Right. And speak, speaking of all my children, I, I'd just like to confirm one thing or deny something here. Is it true that you're a big soap opera junkie? Well, I watch all my children and uh, sometimes Bowling the Beautiful was my favorite. Now it's Young and the Restless. <laughs> uh, started out looking at Young and the Restless with Erica Kane because my niece, Arthel, was on the show some years back, and that's got me started in it. Hmm. And I used to uh, put Erica Kane on the guest list, you know, just clowning around. And I used to send out a song. This song is dedicated to Erica Kane. And, <laughs> and if anybody watched the soaps, they know who I was talking about, you know. <laughs> but I remember listening to the soaps when I was a kid with my grandmother, and I used to listen to them over the, on the radio. That was before the soaps were on TV. And they would be talking to them, <laughs> you know, like, like they were... I guess I'd do the same thing to do, you know, be calling them stupid or whatever. You think you're doing it, making a stupid move. Or, or watch out, you know. Or, <laughs> like you can communicate with them, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I don't know. It's, I guess to some people it's a funny thing, you know. I mean, you're a big fella, right? And uh, big macho guy, tough guy. And uh, for you to be a soap opera junkie, I don't know. It's a funny thing, man. Well, yeah, well, that's cool. I mean, you know, it's something I like, you know. Yeah. Well, having been... Uh, been born in New Orleans. You're still living down that neck of the woods? Where are you at? Oh, I'm in Tennessee. I'm in right out of Nashville in Brentwood. Okay. All right. 
Well, obviously, we've got to talk about the uh, the impact Hurricane Katrina has had on your friends or, or loved ones. On the world. On the yeah. world, yeah, good call, yeah. Have, have you had many direct close friends or loved ones who have just been ripped apart by this thing? Oh, uh, yeah, I've, you know, some of my friends, like, um, came, went back to see, you know, what, what was left of the place and went back and committed suicide or had a heart attack or whatever, you know, it's been devastating, you know. Man. Uh, like I said, but it affected the whole world. I mean, you know, the whole world was watching that first week, you know, when people walking in the water, getting plucked from the rooftops and all. And, but before they started getting plucked from the roof, rooftops, they was walking to the dome and the convention center, and, you know, it was, it was a sad sight. Do you think it's died down uh, in a negative way? In other words, it's not the flavor of the day as far as the press is concerned? And- I think so, you know, because it's like out of sight, out of mind, you know, and like you got people all over the country, you know, suffering. Because a lot of those people are left with nothing but what they had on their back, you know. Mm. You don't have no papers to prove nothing. They don't have, a lot of them didn't own anything. A lot of them were renting houses or, but they did own it, you know, they didn't have the right insurance or whatever, you know. So, you know, it was, it was like a devastating blow to a bunch of people, you know. Mm. Like I said, I probably got friends. I don't know whether they're living or dead. Hopefully they're living. I'll keep them alive in my heart. Yeah. But a lot of people went to the water, you know. Yeah. The yeah. water took them. Well, it's got to be a tough thing to see your your childhood home wiped out. I mean, places you used to play, play you know, places you used to hang out and stuff. They're just not even there, really, right? Yeah, I know. It's like um, it's there, but it ain't there. You know, I haven't been back, but I've been getting a lot of reports and seeing pictures and all. You know, and uh, my kids went back down, and my sister, matter of fact, she's on on a job right out of New Orleans in Jefferson Parish, and my daughter, she's working back at for the civil sheriff. My brother Art is there. His house didn't get affected that much. So, hmm. but my house and three of my kids were underwater. You know. Wow. Well, if I understand things right, you were born in a. I just read this somewhere. I don't even know what the heck it means. You were born in a shotgun house and grew up in a housing project. Now I understand what housing project means. What the heck's a <laughs> well, shotgun? Shotgun house? houses when they go straight through. You know, from the front door to the back. You know, different little rooms. You got to. Might have a, a doorway on the right, then you go through that door, and there's a doorway on the left, you know, but it all leads to the back, straight to the back, you know. It's a pretty small house. Well, yeah. And then I, I was born at Charity Hospital, but we were living in the shotgun house. Then we moved to the Calio Project when I was a year old. Uh, growing up in the projects, we hear lots of people and their stories about growing up in the projects. Uh, I guess it's a tough thing, man. It's It, it, it grows you up tough. That's one thing. Well, you know, when we were growing up in the project, it was a brand-new place, you know. We had, we had good, nice neighbors and all. And and if we were poor, we didn't know it because my parents made sure we had enough to eat and had clothes on our back and all. And you know, we went to school. We went to, went to uh, I don't think we had to pay much to go to school, maybe a dollar a month or something like that to go to St. Monica's Catholic School where the white nuns were, were teaching us and all, at least for me and Art and Charles and Athelga. And Cyril came along later, and he went to school uptown. But... um. You know, it was like a paradise to us. That's all we know. We had a big oval park with a pavement that went around it. We could ride skates or bicycle around or whatever. And that was our world, you know. Hmm. So we got older, and I moved from there when I was 13 years old. And I uh, moved up from the 13th Ward, where Art still lives, and that's not far from Tipitina's. And uh, the last place I was down in the east, and the east got flooded. Yeah, the east got, ta- east got taken out big time, didn't it? Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about your brothers here for a little bit. Uh, what's Art doing these days? Well, we're still doing the Neville Brothers, and he's doing some stuff with the meters. Like I say, he's trying to make a go of it in New Orleans, but I don't know how, how good it's going, you know, because there's not much that's open right now there, you know, maybe. 
you got to go out to Metairie or across the river to get things, and really the hospital is not open and all. Right. So um, it's kind of rough, but he's dealing with it. And what about Charles? He he was the one that used to play sax with B.B. King, is that right? Yeah, Charles lives in Massachusetts, and uh, he's been there about eight years or something like that. Okay. He's still blowing the horn? Oh, uh, yeah, he's still with the Neville Brothers. He's sweet. I mean, he, he punches it out real, real good. Yeah, he's with the Neville Brothers, and also he plays with my quintet when I do solo dates. He's the band leader and, you know, horn man. That's, a, that's his nickname. We call him Charlie the Horn Man. Yeah, that'll work. That'll work. Mm-hmm. And Cyril? Cyril is with us, and uh, he also has his own uh, outside group. Uh used to be called Uptown All-Stars, but he's in Austin now, so I don't really know what, what's the name of his solo band now. But uh, we're, we're still the Neville Brothers, you know, and uh, he's still my favorite singer. He's a soulless guy. I know, I mean, he can, you know, he got soul that, that touch yours, you know. <laughs> I just had James Brown on the show last week. Caught his performance oh, cool, up here. Man. Yeah, and I tell you that was that is the best show I've ever seen, bar none. <laughs> I mean, thinking back to the days of the Soul Machine, Cyril was with you with that, wasn't he? Yeah, that was like uh, right after the, the meters were found. We we after Tell Like It Is went died down in 1967. We went back to New Orleans and Art started up his group. Before it was called the Hawkeyes, he changed the name to the. Art Neville and the Neville Sound, and it was myself, Art, Cyril, and uh, the rhythm section was the meters. You know, George, Leo, and Zig, and we had a guy named Gary Brown playing saxophone. The Charles was living in New York at the time. Hmm. And um, they got a chance to do this gig at this place in the quarter, but it just called for four guys. So the rhythm section with Art took that gig, and me and Cyril uh, got with Sam Henry and Richard Amos and Bulldog Bonnie and uh, Gene Senegal and we, Gary Brown and we started the up to I mean the, the um, <laughs> you just said the name of it Soul Machine Soul Machine yeah so yeah we had fun we were like doing a lot of cover stuff but we'd do it our way you know and it, it was amazing you know just wish we should we could have recorded some of that stuff you know none of it got laid down uh, not really you know it might have some cassette tapes that maybe Sam Henry might be might have some but maybe some bootlegs out there maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, your work with Linda Ronstadt is is infamous, and without a doubt, I, I think that'll stand throughout time as as classics. Those songs will just be absolute classics. Thank you. And speaking of Linda, um, we're trying to get together and do it. We need three more songs, and through the years we've made enough songs. With three more added, we'll have enough to have a duet album. Oh, that'll be sweet. Yeah, we're just looking for the right songs and, and time to go in the studio and do it, because she's touring, I'm touring, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think about you two performing together, and it just—it's like two pure vocalists just tearing it up, absolutely tearing it up. And I guess her and Bette Midler have had a huge impact in your career. Yeah, well, Bette Midler was the one that helped us to get our record deal with A and M Records back. At, uh, I think it might have been '81, and uh, Joe Don produced it when we did Fire on the Buyer. Hmm. You know, she came to see us at Tipitina's, and they said when I sang Tell Like It Is, she swooned off our stool and all, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> So on that album, I dedicated Mona Lisa to Beth Midler, you know, nice for being uh, instrumental in getting us a record deal. Well, when you when you think of the best in terms of pure raw vocal talent out there, who comes to your mind? Uh, I, I mean, they got a lot of stuff out there. I mean, like uh, Beyonce. I heard her do a tribute to Tina Turner the night on that thing. Mm. She's just, I mean, she's just she can do anything. I mean, a lot of us. Uh, Singers like Luther just left us, you know, but he was one of the greats. And um, I like Usher, I like uh, Alicia Keys. Got a lot of stuff I don't really know the names, sure. but I like the songs, you know. 
Who would you like to work with in the future? And I'd like to do some of the Reether, you know. But you have, you haven't done anything with the Reether yet? No. Wow. We might be doing the National Anthem for the uh, Super Bowl together. Oh, that'd be sweet. Yeah. Let me read a quote here I read from you. It said, My folks taught me that music, love, and God are all one thing. So in singing these standards, these romantic songs that get prettier with each passing year, I feel more than an earthly love. I feel the force of God, the spirit of all love. God gave me my voice that helped me through a lot of adversities or whatever you call them. Well, tell tell us about your spiritual journey, Aaron. How did it all begin? If I understand right, your father attended a Trinity Methodist church right, yeah. across, right across the street from your home, right? You know, his his aunts, who were my great aunts, you know, that was their church. So as kids, we were living in the Catholic Project, and we were going to St. Monica's school, and we went to St. Monica Catholic Church. I graduated from eighth grade there. All of us did, me, Cyril, and, I mean, me, Art, and Charles. Mm. And um, we would go uptown and visit our aunts, and we'd go to their church, too, you know, which is the Trinity. So you're doing the Methodist and the Catholic at the same time. Right, yeah. Man, that's that's a knack, boy. If you can manage that one, that's good. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, <laughs> God is God, I feel like. You know, back in those days, the Catholic people didn't want you to go to no other kind of church. But, I mean, you know, and I don't have no regrets about it, so I think it helped to raise me, you know. As a kid, if you're growing up in church, you get the church stuff, you get the God stuff, it's all part of what you're growing up in. But when did you start to own it for yourself? You know, um, I remember rocking on my grandmother's lap when I was a real young kid, and she'd be listening to Brother Joe Mays and Sister Rosetta Thorpe and the Blind Boys and Mahalia. And, and I was getting turned on to it back then, you know. Mm. And then when I was about 13, I heard Sam Cooke sing a song any day it was a slow spiritual and you know like back in the days a lot of the spirituals a lot of you know singing hard and rough like you know mm. a lot of screaming and going and Sam was just so smooth with it you know yeah I fell in love with that song I later recorded it so I was a big Sam Cooke fan I mean me and my boys used to walk down the street whatever we were doing we'd be singing down like the blind boys or the soul stars or the pilgrim travelers or the, you know so gospel music really penetrated you then? Yeah, and when I was in St. Monica, we'd go to church and the choir would sing Ave Maria. I didn't know the words, I didn't know what it meant. But it would touch my soul some kind of way, and later in life when I needed prayers or whatever, you know, I'd, I'd sing that song, you know, and it, it would kind of soothe me, and it was like medicine, you know. And later I recorded that. What made me actually learn the words was this lady asked me to sing it. She wanted to surprise her sister at her wedding. She said, I heard you sing this song. I, I said, no, you never heard me sing it because I've never sang it nowhere. <laughs> I sang the song called Lovely Lady Dressed in Blue, which was a poem I learned in Catholic school. And uh, I put some music to it at the time we were doing Fire on the Bayou when I was going through some changes, you know. Yeah. And um, it was like somebody told me how to play it. You know, I just sat down and started playing it and it came out like that. It's on the album called To Make Me Who I Am. But anyway, she asked me to do this Ave Maria. So I said, well, you get the, the record from me, let me learn it, and I'll do it. And she got a record from me by Placid Domingo in the Vienna Boys Choir. So I listened to it, and I learned it. And I was enjoying learning it so much. So I sang it at the latest wedding, and that was the first time that I did it in public. And it was cool, you know. How long ago was that, the wedding? Oh, it was, that was way back, probably in the late 70s or something like that. Yeah. Well, I'll just remind our listeners, we're on the phone with Aaron Neville. Aaron, who had more of an influence on you, your your father, Big Arthur Neville, or, or your Uncle George? Well, both of them. You know, they had their own thing. Like, my father, he was like, he was a bathtub singer. He was singing in the bathtub and all, you know. 
Yeah. But he was a strong, powerful guy, you know. I always say that uh, people ask me to describe my music, and I tell them, well, it's the strength and wisdom of my father, it's the love and tenderness of my mother, and the innocence of my childhood. And my Uncle Jolly, well, he, he was our musical mentor because he was a piano player and a singer. Him and my mom were song and dance team before we were born. They had a chance to go out with Louis Prima, but my grandmother wouldn't let him go out with him because it was back in the Jim Crow days and all, you know. And uh, But my mother promised she'd never stop us from going, and, and that's why she let Charles go out when he was like 15 years old. He went out with a minstrel show, but... uh. Uncle Jolly had a big influence on all of us. You know, he was like, we call him a ratty dude, you know, real hip, you know. <laughs> and my dad, he was a kind of don't-take-no-shit guy, you know. Don't mess with Big Arthur, you know. He, <laughs> his left hand, that left hand to come out and knock you out. <laughs> so, um, well, I read somewhere that uh, Uncle Jolly, as you call him, uh, last name's Landry, is that right? Yeah. Uh, he influenced you spiritually as well. I don't, I don't understand that. Is that just because of the musical connection, or was he a spiritual, well, you know, spiritual guy too? Or You know, between him and my mom, he used to tell us a lot of things. He'd say things that stuck with me anyway. Like my mother's thing was the golden rule. She'd always tell me doing to others that you had them doing to you. And Jala was just also always so nice to people. Even when he was dying, I was in the hospital with him. You know, um, for three months I brought him to the hospital, and he found out he had lung cancer and and I watched him go from a big strapping man down to nothing, you know. And I felt his spirit, he felt mine, and we'd and pray together. And, and my wife would come up and sit with us sometime, you know. I'd sleep there. I'd have a cot, you know, that was next to the bed. And uh, that kind of was a spiritual thing, you know. I watched him. I wrote a poem about it. It's called uh, Ode to My Big Chief Jolly Man, you know. Mm. And I wrote it while he was in the hospital. And it's in my book of poetry. I used to write down things, you know, that, that would help me a lot, you know. I'd be going through any kind of whatever, I'd write it down, and it would get me through it, you know. I can only imagine what's in that book. How, how many years you've been writing in that in that book for? Well, you know, it all happened. I haven't been putting anything late. The last thing I did was a thing called, as the sun goes down, it was a thing like, you know, wow, you know, the sun goes down really fast, you know, and so a day ain't really that long. Time is shorter than you think, you know. When you're young, you'd be saying, wow, man, I'd be glad when I make 18, you know, I can do what I want. But after you make 18, them years go to jumping by so fast. Yeah. You know, because me and my friend Marvin, we grew up together, and we shoot pool together sometimes. We used to anyway in New Orleans. And uh, we'd say, man, where did 60 years go that fast? <laughs> <laughs> it zoomed by, you know. Yeah. That was the last thing I wrote was as the sun goes down. But I, I got Yellow Moon came out of that, Brother Jake. That was a true story about a friend of me and Cyril's. The, the next album we did after Yellow Moon was uh, it was no. from a, a poem in my book, Steer Me Right, from a poem in my book. Uh, I read on the website for the, um, was it the Gospel Songs of Bob Dylan CD called Gotta Serve Somebody, in which you performed. Yeah. Uh, a quote that you said there was, I could be some of my buddies, either dead, crazy, crazy or, do, or doing time. Or doing yeah. time, yeah. But he chose for me to be here and, and talking to you today. And I guess right. apparently between 66 and 76, life got a little wild for you. Is that right? Between uh, 1956? Yeah, 66 and 76. Is that about right? Uh, it started before then. I was kind of wild when I was young, you know. Hmm. I got mad real young. and Well, you start, uh, you were smoking dope in, in, uh, in junior high, right? Yeah, I was shooting dope in junior high. Okay. I started out to experiment, you know, and, uh, and it got serious and... At the while, it became like a, you know, sort of a way of life thing, you know. But 
by me, I guess by me being married, saved me because it gave me responsibility. And some of my friends didn't have that, so they they went further than I went, you know. And a lot of them are dead now, or doing time, or crazy. That's one of the songs I wrote. Uh, also came from my poetry book. Was called Jesus is a friend of mine, and I put it to music. And on the last part of it is a song one of my great aunts used to call her Auntie Cat. So she used to take care of all of the cats in the neighborhood. And she used to tell us that that was God's voiceless children. And her, her favorite song was, Save You, Leave Me, Lest I Stray. So I combined that with the, uh, Jesus, a friend of mine, poetry, and, and with the choir singing, Save You, Leave, leave Me, Lest I Stray, at the, the last of it. you know. And it's a real powerful testimony. Well, I mean, speaking of powerful testimonies, you you got one, man. You, you From the drugs to stealing cars to cutting on people to prison, I mean... He, even separation from your wife. I think once when you left and then once when she chucked you out. Well, I used to go on the road, you know, try to seek my fortune, you know, because, like, I was in New Orleans. Uh, the record companies would had you tied down to contracts and all. You couldn't really do nothing. You know, I'd tell Sarah, I'd say, hey, man, you feel adventurous? Let's go to New York. Let's go to California. We'd jump on the bus with five dollars and a bag of chicken and go, you know. <laughs> and whatever happened, happened, you know. And one of those times, I'll... I went and um, I wound up. Uh, with, I was out with Larry Williams, and that was not a good influence in your life. <laughs> I mean, no. I mean, you know, the musically, yeah, you know, but the other Larry, no, he was like, you know, he's a gangster. Yeah. And uh, I got caught up in it, and I would pray so hard, you know, I'd say, Lord, you know, get me out of this, you know. Like my favorite prayer now is footprints in the sand. You know that prayer? Yeah, James Brown. That's his favorite. Well, yeah. Well, I know each time he carried me, you know, and um. I told some of the stories in our book, in the Never Brothers book, and that was one time when I was praying for something to happen so I could get out of this, you know, situation, and it got me busted, and, you know, I was happy, I was glad, you know, I felt relief. Was this when you got uh, got busted in the van, you were hiding in the van? Right, or yeah. What, tell our listeners that story, man, that's a jacked up story. I, well, like, you know, like I said, you know, I was there to sing, I went up there to sing, and uh, the record company in New Orleans had a contract on me, I called it, I was being held captive, you know, or whatever, so I had to do something, I was living with Larry at the time, Larry and his wife, you know, and um, I had to do something to, to carry my end of the load, so I, he'd bring me on some of the things he was doing, and like I said, I'd get high, you know, to try to get enough nerve to go out there and do that, you know. Mm. And this night we were putting a burglar in. They rented a van, like a pulled uh, sliding door van, and um, they went into one store and they went through the wall to go into the other store with picks and crowbars and all. And so they carried suits back and put it in this van. And it looked like somebody had saw us, and everybody had split and went different ways. And I was like about 22, I think. Yeah. And uh, me and this guy Steve went out on this bench on Sunset. And uh, he got him and said, I'm going to go see what's happening. He went back in, and, and he didn't come back. So I figured, well, here, they must it's all right. So I went back in, and as soon as I got to the truck, I heard somebody talking. And I got in the van, and I slid the door closed, and I could hear the talking. And I hear the guy say, Michelle, somebody's in the place. And I'm in there, you know, I'm picturing all this stuff, you know, and I'm I'm high, you know, so it's funny, you know. <laughs> I'm picturing Larry and him in the store looking at each other, you know. And all of a sudden, he said, it's a, Hey, whoever y'all come on out, we want to make a scene. What are you doing in there anyway? And I said, man, we cleaning up. And the, and the lady said, I didn't ever have nobody to clean up my place. And that was the funniest thing to me. I was rolling <laughs> over in the, in the truck, you know. So he came out and they got away. And the lady started screaming, you know. 
and I drew people from uh, all around the neighborhood, and the door locked on me. I couldn't get it out, get it open for nothing. I know that was God doing that. I didn't know that at the time. Hmm. You know, I could not get that door open and tell the police for that, and it slid open just as easy. Hmm. And I just said, thank you, Jesus. You know, that, that was like, <laughs> that was my salvation. I was a savior. Finally getting busted. You are supposed to go in front of a fairly lenient judge, too. Is that right? Yeah, yeah Judge Brand, and he was, uh, when I got there, he was on vacation. Doesn't that so, figure? Uh, yeah, you know, so, and the guy that was there, he was giving out time like it was ice water. And uh, saying, well, I'll give you what the law prescribed, 10 to 25 to life and all that, San Quentin. And he got to me, told me the same thing, 1 to 14 in San Quentin. And my legs turned to butter, and I looked over at my lawyer, and he shook his head. I looked at the probation officer, and he shook his head, and the judge said, but I suspend that. For me, before that, uh, I was able to go home and be with my family, you know, come back and go to whatever court I had to go to and all that. And my mother had turned me on to St. Jude, the St. Impossible. That was in my earring, and uh, I have a gold uh, medal of St. Jude in my earring. And we'd go up the steps on on, on our knees at St. Anne's Shrine, and... Uh, go to St. Jude Novena, and, uh, and the judge said, but that's all I could think about was St. Jude, you know. Hmm. He said, I suspend that sentence and put you on a three-year probation dividing you to the first six months. So, you know, I said, thank you, Your Honor, and thank you, Jesus, thank you, St. Jude. And that was, you know, it was like uh, got to go up and fight for us, fires and all. I was Like I was young, you know, I got on a weight pile, filled my body up and all, and, and uh I got out and given my probation in New Orleans, so I was able to go back and be with my family. Hmm. And uh, a couple of years later, I had recorded "Tell Like It Is." You know what? What amazes me is you know guys like you and I who have a tough time just doing what God wants us to do. We know we always kind of want to just just venture off and do our own thing, and a little independence, a little rebelliousness inside of our heart. And God is just so patient with us. He is ridiculously patient if it was oh, me if it, if it was me i would have done what your uh what your dad would have done you know he would just that left hand would have come out and whack <laughs> right oh yeah yeah the heroin that's got to be the toughest thing you've had to deal with because i i've got i've had some friends who've been hooked on it and that is from what oh, i hear yeah. that's one of the toughest things to kick it's it's a uh, yes yeah, mental and physical you know like a lot of things it does more mental than, than anything you no know, but uh it's physical and you know, when you start out, you're enjoying it, you know, then you start doing it just to feel normal, and then you realize how ugly it is, you know. Mm. You start out like a beautiful woman, then she got ugly on you, and you know, start doing all kind of wrong things. You'd be doing it to yourself, really, you yeah. know, self-destruction. Well, folks, we're on the phone with Aaron Neville, and Aaron, i got to ask you this. How do you know that you'll never go back to heroin again? I mean, you, you come off it, you went back, you came off it, you went back. How do you know you'll well, never go back again? You know... I've been off it since 1981, and uh, like I say, uh, I don't just remember the good part of it. I remember the bad part of it. That's enough to scare the hell out of you? Yeah. I got those visions in my in my mind, in my head, in my heart yeah. that I never want to see again. And I talked to kids, you know. I had a youth center at one time. We used to bring kids up to Angola, uh, Louisiana State Penitentiary, for the prisons to talk to them, you know, and tell them about the drugs and the penitentiary and all that, you know. And hopefully it helps some of them out, you know. 
so you know that's my salvation in China. You know, that's why I did those recordings. I did the Jesus, a friend of mine. You know, looking at the kids in my neighborhood. You know, and all that, praying that they don't go through. You know, what I had to go through. I did another song a few years back called "To Make Me Who I Am." So you know, sometimes I feel like I was supposed to see and feel what I did to have compassion for for whatever. You know, for kids I'm seeing growing up today and all. You know. And trying them same things, I know what they're going through. You know, yeah. like some people don't. You know, they're, they're saying, "Well, why don't you just stop?" But it ain't just that easy. No, know? it's not that easy. And they need more uh, rehabilitation places, and they need penitentiaries. But the thing is, is to the streets, drugs, penitentiary, no in between. No. You know, there are a lot of people they want help. You know, like when I went into rehab, it was a mixed emotions. I was afraid because I didn't know nothing but the streets at the time, and. But I wanted this help, you know. And I also, I was doing the song Mona Lisa, and I was picturing my mom and dad, and they were both dead at that time. I was also picturing all the people that I left, met along the way that wasn't as lucky as I was, you know. And I knew that this was one time that God was carrying me and bringing me to safety, hmm. you know. And I was feeling for the, for the people that are still out there, you know, like some of my friends, either dead crazy or doing time, you know. Hmm. You know, I didn't spend too long on the streets. I was only there a little bit of time. But when I was on the streets, that was the time I had kind of the wildest supernatural stuff happen in my life. And Aaron, i got to ask you, have you ever had just, you know, one of those knock-down, take-your-breath-away supernatural encounters with God? Uh, I've probably had a few, I guess. You know, like I've seen things and felt things. Uh, I remember times I didn't have nothing, you know. Uh, well, like I said, with the time when I was split from my wife in the early 70s, that was like the lowest point of my life. Music helped me a lot, you know, and my prayers to St. Jude and to God. And I saw some things up when I was in New York. I saw like the, the, the real dark side of what I was going through out there that really helped me to change my mind about it. I don't want no, no part of this, you know. Yeah. Be down in those shooting galleries and you see those guys or, or ladies or whatever down there with their hands and their arms big as Popeyes from just jigging and yep. tormenting themselves, trying to get a hit, you know, and and it wasn't there, you know. No. They didn't just ruin themselves, you know. Hmm. I said, Lord, I want out of this, you know. So he got me out. Tell us about your tats. Uh, the most visible one would be the cross on your face. Yeah, well, that was something I'd done when I was about 16, something like that. My daddy came on and, boy, what you done done? I said, I got a tattoo. <laughs> he made me go scrub it with Brillo and uh, Ibogan soap. Oh, no. The skin came off, but the tattoo didn't. So. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. What about the other ones? You got a uh, big Jesus tattoo in your right arm, I think. Is that yeah, it? Yeah, and I got a cross with the sacred heart of Jesus on the left. I need him close. I want him close to me, you know. Hmm. And I got one that Charles put on my arm. is a, a dagger with a snake wrapped around it. And the other one, I got a heart with the M in it and the cross on top. And underneath that is Mom, because Mom was definitely my salvation. And she turned me on. She used to bring me to St. Jude's. She used to talk to me, you know. She was the sweetest person. My my friends would say, "Man, I share with your mom was my mom. <laughs> the most she got the most understanding in the world. I mean, you couldn't fool her with nothing, you know." Yeah. And uh, she would just tell tell her like it is, you know. And she'd tell you like it was. Yeah. But her thing was, she was a nice person. She was sweet and just had love coming from her, and just uh, anybody that knew her could feel that, you know. Well, your marriage, man. Uh, I mean, this is the thing that stands out the most for me. Your marriage is 47 years long, and you had, you know, you had a couple of separations. One main one, for sure, right? Yeah, that was the early 70s, yeah. 
I guess everyone wants to know how you did it. I mean, most people don't get back and make it work after separation. Whenever there's usually whenever there's a big honking separation like what you went through, uh, you might come back a little bit, but then it's done. Yeah, well, I guess you would say it was a whole lot of love and want, you know, and knowing that she was a part of me. And, mm. and uh, I remember visiting my kids one time, and Ivan came up to me. Like At the time, my in-laws, they didn't kind of care too much for me, so you know, I had to sneak and see my kids across the street in the park from, the, from their house. Right. And uh, we had been separated for a long time, and Ivan said, uh, you know, Dad, I was just looking at a picture of us. You know, we made a pretty family, man. We're only going to get back together. And that just, like, broke my heart, you know. Oh, yeah. And, man, I want to get back together so bad, you know. And just had to just wait till it happened, you know. Where's Joelle at with all the uh, all the God stuff? Oh, she's she's in the God, you know. She, she's in church. You know, we're Catholic, you know. But right now, she's going through a cancer thing, you know. She's been in remission for the last couple of years. And, you know, we do our novenas every day. Uh, St. Jude and St. Joseph and Blessed Mother. Wow, that's that's got to be a tough thing. Now, it's a couple of years of remission now. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a that's a real kick, isn't it? I mean, whose life yeah. whose life hasn't been touched by this cancer, man? Oh yeah, it's crazy. It's like you know, scary, you know, and real. Yeah. How old are your children? Uh, Ivan is forty-six. Aaron Junior is about forty-two or something like that, and my daughter Ernestine is forty-one. Right. And Jason is 34. Man. Any of your children, have any of them decided to follow a particular spiritual path? You know, they got their own thing. Like, uh, they're all into music, except my daughter. She works for the Silver Chef in New Orleans. Mm. But uh, Ivan has, you know, he has his own group called Dumpster Funk. He's a talented guy. He's played with Keith Richards and the expensive winos. He's played with Bonnie Raitt. He's played with uh, different groups. But he has his own group now. Plus, he's part of the Neville Brothers. My son Aaron, he's here in Nashville with me, and he's uh, he's a singer, and he can work in the studio or whatever, you know. And him and he's, I haven't supposed to get him with his group, and you know, like the storm just messed up a lot of things for a lot of people, and all, you know, hmm. and split us split us up. And my youngest son Jason, he's living right out of Atlanta. Ivan, he's between Austin and L.A. They're all moving on. Yeah, doing their own you thing, know, right? I, I I talk to them a lot and give them a lot of uh, you know information and. You know, they know where I've been, and they know my heart. You know, they know I'm a, I'm a good person and whatever, and I, all, all I want is the best for them, you know. Do you think they listen to you when you give them spiritual advice, or do you think they're like most kids? they kind of got to figure know, it out in their own way. sometimes they have to find out for themselves, you know, but in, in, in the long run, they listen, you know. Yeah. Well, look, man, I, I just, uh, I'm so appreciative of the time you've given us. I've known about you being a deep spiritual guy for a lot of years, and I've wanted to hook up with you and just... Just talk to you about your spiritual life. Um, Have you had a chance to listen to uh, Gospel Roots, my Gospel Gospel CDs? No, sir. Kent's, I think Kent's going to send that up to me uh, this week, and uh, I am just aching to get my hands on it. Well, you're going to hear a lot of testimony. You're going to hear a lot of me feeling for the world, and you're going to feel my soul in that You feel my life, my soul, my love for my fellow man and woman, you know. You know, I can get in the car and ride and listen to myself singing, and I know where I'm coming from on each song, you know. Yeah. Well, I I don't know. The thing that's hit me in this interview is is your wife going through that cancer stuff, and I'm yeah. I mean, thank God she's in remission right now. That's tremendous, and let's oh, hope, let's hope it just doesn't rear its head again. Um, but if I get wind that that this thing's come back again, I'll I'll be on my knees before Jesus asking I him to appreciate it. Well, just asking him to flat out healer that's what our hearts say that's what our hearts want to, yeah right 
anyway, I, I, I wish you the best in that. I really do, man. That's that's Thank a you. tough thing to go through. And, and I'm proud of you. You know, you're an inspiration for me. I mean, it's 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 a tough thing staying married these days. And for you to, to uh, kick it for 47 years, uh, you're an inspiration to me, man. I appreciate it. Well, like I said, you know, my marriage kind of saved my life, I guess. You know, saved me, you know, from a lot of other downfalls in life, you know. Yeah. Because it gave me it gave me something to, to live for. It gave me a purpose, you know. You know, it sounds like you've had some amazing women in your life. I mean, we're talking about your mom, your your grandma, your aunts, uh, to your wife, to even Bette Midler. And, uh... Even down to the nuns that taught us in grammar school. We still see one of our fourth grade teacher named Sister Damien. She's up. She's teaching the Indian children up in uh, New Mexico. We stay in touch with her. She remembers everybody was in the class. Everybody did whatever they had done and all. You know? <laughs> so it's funny. It's us guys that make all the noise, but we know it. We know it's the women behind us that make the difference. Almost definitely. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Well, listen. Thank you again for your time, Aaron. It's uh, been a, a privilege just to speak with you. Oh, it was nice talking to you too. Wish you all the best. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Look at this face. I know the years are showing. Look at this life. I still don't know where it's going. I don't know much. But I know I love you. And that may be... All I need to know Look at these eyes They've never seen what matters Look at these dreams So big and so better I don't know much But I know I love you So many questions still left unanswered. So much I've never broken through. And what I feel in me, sometimes I see so clearly. The only truth I've ever known. So blessed with inspiration Look at this soul Still searching for salvation I don't know much But I know I love you And that may be All I need to know
Let me be all day.